All right, we're all set to begin. Uh, before we get to Robert's lesson, one quick announcement. Due to uh, a conflict, next weekend we will actually be off. So that will be Saturday, October 30th. We will not have a uh, October 29th, rather. We will not have a Bible study. We will resume on Saturday, November 5th. Apology for the interruption, but, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes things happen. So we'll resume in two weeks after this. Appreciate your patience with that. Uh, that is the only major announcements that I have, but I, I should get in the habit as I have been of reminding everyone that if you'd like to get in touch with Robert, uh, or get in touch with me, you can do that through the Bible study page of the website. There is a contact form to do that. And of course, if you miss any part of the lesson while we're live, you can listen back, uh, to the show or to the, uh, lesson rather to the discussion, to the study, uh, after the fact. Uh, as well through the Bible study page of the website. Just So just reminding everyone of those resources. Uh, those are the only things that I have to say. So without further ado, uh, Robert has another lesson for us. All right. Hello, everyone. As usual, I have a recording of the scripture that we're about to read. And today we are going to finish chapter 12. Now my soul is greatly distressed. And what should I say? Father, deliver me from this hour? No, but for this very reason I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard the voice said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice has not come for my benefit, but for yours. Now is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now he said this to indicate clearly what kind of death he was going to die. Then the crowd responded, We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus replied, The light is with you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness may not overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he went away and hid himself from them. Although Jesus had performed so many miraculous signs before them, they still refused to believe in him, so that the word of Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled. He said, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn to me, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw Christ's glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess Jesus to be the Christ, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. But Jesus shouted out, The one who believes in me does not believe in me, but in the one who sent me. And the one who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not obey them, I do not judge him. For I have not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 
The one who rejects me and does not accept my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him at the last day. For I have not spoken from my own authority, but the Father himself who sent me has commanded me what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Thus the things I say, I say just as the Father has told me. The Gospel of John, chapter 12. And I just noticed that on the blog, I I, uh, included some of the text from chapter 13 because at first I intended to cover it. So forgive me, I will uh, stealth edit that later. Uh, (laughs) But let's get to... Um, the main themes of what we read today. We begin with being told that Jesus is greatly distressed, or the other way to translate that word would be to say troubled. Now, I think, and, and you guys may disagree, and you, you might let me know later, but I think that this is actually kind of shocking, that the Bible would say this, that Jesus is distressed. Now, why do I say that? Because, of course, you know, Jesus will be crucified and, you know, he will be killed in, a, in an awful way. So we understand the distress from that standpoint. But just for a second, consider if we were writing kind of the classic Greek uh, story of a hero, something like that, right? Um, the hero would would not show weakness, particularly when he is coming up to his final challenge, so to speak, the hero would remain defiant and would not complain. And that certainly was the expectation of the people at the time, right? What I mean by that is in their heroic tales, that's how they went. And I think it's also fair to say that as as a modern audience, we also expect a similar tale. You know, we we might think of like Braveheart and that scene when Mel Gibson is, is, you know, yelling freedom as he is killed and i have not watched that movie in seemingly a hundred years so if i'm getting that scene incorrect um (laughs) forgive me but you see what i mean it is actually quite an admission and it's it's one that we should think about as a quick apologetics note i think this this goes to show that the story we're reading is true. If somebody was making up a story to make Jesus seem as grand and heroic as possible, they would not include details like this one. Okay, But really, more importantly, what can we learn from this fact? Well, I think there's at least two lessons that we can, that we can get from this that are important. One is that Jesus is human, that he is truly human. So he feels... Uh, the things that a human would feel, right? He is about to endure terrible, terrible things, and he feels dread, just like we would. This is one of the core doctrines of Christianity, which is why I am spending some time to highlight this. Jesus is, (coughs) excuse me, Jesus is truly human and truly God. Uh, This was something that was settled, so to speak, if we want to call it that, in in very early councils, in the Council of Ephesus in 431, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, um, and really anyone uh, who has ever disagreed with this, because there's been many groups that say, no, Jesus was truly human, but not truly God, or the opposite, truly God, but not truly human. Um, 
those groups have always been uh, denounced as heretical, as outside of the Christian faith. Um, so it, it, this is a moment that really points to Jesus' humanity. I have a, a little uh, side note in the, in the blog. I don't know how much I want to address this, uh, you know, here during the during the lesson. But there is a certain section of Christians that do not agree with the Council of Chalcedon. That would be the Oriental Church, uh, which is different from the Eastern Church. Okay, like it's the Oriental Orthodox, not the Eastern Orthodox. But they have a very nuanced disagreement. Uh, they, they claim that Jesus does not have two natures, a human nature and a, and a God nature, but both natures become one. So he has one nature that includes both. But they would still affirm that Jesus is truly human and truly God. So for purposes of what we're discussing today, there is literally no disagreement between any Christian group. This is a core doctrine everyone agrees with. Now, what is the other thing that we should pay attention to? If you're familiar with the stories of Christians being martyred, particularly in the ancient world, right, in the first three or four centuries of Christianity, these, these uh, Christians would go to their deaths celebrating. There's tales of them going to their death, singing hymns, or, uh, you know, not, not complaining while, while they were being killed, or, or even being very kind and almost kind of funny as, as all all these awful things were happening. So the question kind of arises, well, why couldn't Jesus be like that? And I do feel slightly disrespectful just asking it that way, but I think it's a question worth asking. And I think the answer to that is that Jesus was not only headed towards a gruesome death in a physical sense, but Jesus was about to pay a very heavy price, the ultimate price, the eschatological price for all of sin. And this particular punishment, that, that spiritual punishment, is something that no Christian martyr endured. No one before Jesus, no one after, no one carried that burden. So Jesus is carrying a burden like no one else ever did or has since then. Um, then the people hear the voice of God, right? And they... Uh, say it sounds like thunder something it might it might be an angel and this the fact that the voice of god sounds like thunder is actually an important throwback to exodus we have dis discussed exodus many times um in in this bible study so i don't really have to go into detail but think of the time when the jews received the law from god on mount sinai okay so god is meeting with the with the israelites for the first time as a nation, God had already spoken to several people in the Bible at that point, but as a nation, God is making a covenant with them. This is the time when they kind of solidify as the people of God. And the voice of God sounds like thunder. And actually, the people are so scared that they, say, they, they tell Moses, we don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear the voice of God. You speak to God, and then you tell us what he said. We are too afraid, okay? Which, it, it's actually kind of a running joke, if we want to call it that, in the Gospel of John. I have not pointed it out before this point because, you know, there's only so much that I can talk about. But it comes up again, the fact that the, the Jews were very proud. We know the word of God, right? And yet, when you go all the way back to the beginning, actually, the Jews said, no, 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 we don't want to hear 
your word. You tell Moses, and then Moses tells us. So the the Israelites actually were not uh, directly familiar with the voice of God, and you see that again in the scene that when God speaks. They do not recognize the voice of God. They've mistaken it for thunder. They've mistaken it for the voice of an angel. Uh, and all this, like I said, connects to that very first moment when the Israelites say, no, we don't want to hear the voice of God. Speak to Moses. Um, well, then we have a very, um, yeah, I think this is fair to say, a very cryptic kind of passage where Jesus says, now the ruler of this world will be driven out. Now, why do I say this is cryptic? If you're a Christian, of course, and you've read through the Bible, you probably are, are thinking, no, Robert, what, what are you talking about? This is not cryptic. But let's confine ourselves for a moment to the Gospel of John. We have heard a whole lot about sin, right? We have heard a lot about redemption, about Jesus being the light, and they struggle between the light and darkness. Okay, all that has been covered time and time again. But we have not really read a whole lot about the, quote, ruler of this world, Satan, right? Um, and, and I know that he has come up a couple of times. I'm not saying it has not come up at all. But really, there's been, like, no explanation at length about this. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says that the ruler of this world will be driven out. Well, what does Jesus mean by that? It's actually kind of hard, kind of hard to, to put it all together, what the Bible has to say about this. So I'm going to do the best job that I can, and I'm going to leave some things unanswered. Uh, I'm sure that people can interact later, and maybe we can hash this out. But uh, where should we begin if we want to know what John means by this? Well, the most obvious sources would be the other books written by John. In, in the book of Revelation, that is the last book of the Bible. John writes something that is nearly identical. Now, let me go ahead and explain one thing that is very important anytime you're approaching the book of Revelation. That book is what we call apocalyptic literature. So that, that literature is full of imagery. And that imagery actually tends to include the same motifs, big monsters, for example, that are devouring and then being vanquished and that kind of thing. Um, Revelation is not the only apocalyptic writing that we have from the ancient world. That's why we know that there's kind of this common way of writing things. Um, the end of, of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament would also be this type of literature. Now, in, in the book of Revelation, we, uh, we have the following verse. So that huge dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, was thrown down to the earth and his angels along with him. Right? Very, very similar to saying the prince of this world will be driven out. Um, now, we might be thinking, okay, so the devil was completely defeated. But let's go to the letter of First John. This is one of... The letters that John wrote is not part of the gospel. It's a different writing, and it's later in the New Testament. But he says the following. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay. Now, mind you, this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And John is still saying the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Well, then, in a sense, what gives, right? <laughs> How do we put this together? 
and there's a couple of possibilities. You could look at this like Satan is driven out, but not yet. He's he's driven out in the future at the at the very end of the story in the end times. And so this is a proleptic reference. Like Jesus is speaking of something that will happen much, much later. Um, the other option, of course, is that um, Satan has been driven out in principle, but in practice, this is still playing out. Uh, the example that I that I give in the blog, if it's helpful for anyone, imagine that you're playing chess and you make a winning move. You know from that point forward that you will win this match. There's no way the other guy can turn it around. But if the other guy doesn't concede, you still have to play it out right? It does, the match doesn't just end. You must still play it out. And we very much can look at it this way. Well, this leads to what I think is the most relevant question, which is then what is the current situation? Uh, how much power does Satan have now, right? And here's where I was trying to confine myself to the writings of John, because all of a sudden we're going to, we're just going to do a deep dive into into just theology instead of a study of this particular book. But I did pull a, a verse from Hebrews. And at the very least, I think we, we should we should be clear on some things. Jesus does seem to be speaking of now. He says now twice in that in that sentence, right? Or in that verse. He says, um I'm I'm trying to find it right quick so I can read it. But uh, just take my word for it now. I'll find it here in a minute. But Jesus says now the ruler of this world will be driven out. At the same time, we know for sure that John says in 1 John, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So Satan has been driven out of whatever place he had. He no longer has the same power he had before, but he still has power at least over the world. Now, when you hear the expression, the world, generally in the epistles, really generally in the in the New Testament, the world is a comparison to those who are of Christ. So you have Christians, you have people who are in Christ, and then the rest of the people would be, quote unquote, the world. Okay. So Satan has power over those who are not of Christ. Um, well, how has Satan lost power over those who are of Christ? At the very least, we can say he no longer has power to destroy them, right? Because Jesus has promised and secured eternal life through his death and resurrection. So Satan can no longer destroy those who are securing Christ. Um, so that much we know for sure. Now, to what extent Satan can influence a believer today or a non-believer that is a harder question that I am going to leave open, unless, again, people want to discuss this further. Um, I, I could say more, but I really want to stick to what we know for sure from the book that we're reading. Okay, the, the next exchange in what we read is a little bit confusing because I think the crowds are confused. <laughs> so it makes us confused. The crowds say, hey, um, won't the Christ remain forever? And that's a quote, you know, he quote will remain forever. Um, and so if, if the son of man is going to die, because they do understand that part as well, that Jesus is talking about somebody being crucified. Um, then who is the son of man? Essentially what they're saying is if the Christ has to remain forever and the son of man will be crucified, then surely these two people must be different people. 
Well, before we untangle what the crowds are saying, I think we ought to ask, are the crowds correct in their assertion that the Christ will, quote, remain forever? Short answer is yes, the crowds are correct. Their confusion lies somewhere else. But in the scriptures, right, in the Old Testament, we see multiple places that say pretty much in black and white that the Christ, the Messiah, will remain forever. Uh, I quote two examples. One would be Isaiah 9, 6, where we hear of a everlasting father. And another place would be Psalm 110, where we read of an eternal priest. Okay, So whenever the Messiah is spoken of in the Old Testament, he is always eternal. He will reign forever. He will be the priest forever. Um, so the crowds are correct. Now, then what are the crowds getting wrong? Well, what they're getting wrong is that they don't understand where Jesus is going, right? They think that by Jesus dying, then he is, quote, not remaining forever. But remember that this is the point that Jesus keeps making because you guys are not of the light. You don't know where I am from or where I am headed. Jesus has said this multiple times, you know, particularly in the last few chapters. So if the crowds were to understand that Jesus dying is not actually him not remaining forever, that is that is part of the process by which Jesus will return to the Father and reign from his right hand forever. Okay. So that is the confusion that they are making. And for that reason, Jesus responds with the same message that he has been giving. Hey, I am the light, you know, partake in the light. And, I, and I'm paraphrasing just this whole idea that if you are in the light, you would understand where I am from and where I am going. The crowds do not. Okay. Um, before I actually move on to the next point, there's, there's one point I didn't make when talking about the ruler of this world that I did intend to make, which is that... Notice that the popular image of Satan being the ruler of hell is not correct at all. Like not one, at least by the Christian standards. I mean, and and let's face it. I mean that that idea of Satan in hell and all that. It's allegedly Christian. That's where it, you know hypothetically it comes from. But that's just not the case. In in the Bible, we don't ever have Satan ruling over hell and like punishing the people who are there, punishing the damned. Satan is spoken as the ruler of this world. And he is influencing us that he may destroy us. He may lead us into destruction. You know, like a lion who's prowling, looking for someone to devour. That's a, a verse from, from another letter. But that is the Christian image. This whole idea that Satan rules in hell is simply unchristian. It's just not the Christian idea. Okay, so um, I do hope that at the very least we can be disabused of that notion. Okay, and finally, we come to probably the trickiest part of this reading, which is the judicial hardening of Israel. What do I mean by that? John deals with a very difficult question. John deals with the question of, Mind you, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, right? Now, he is the Messiah to, to the Messiah to the world as well, but he is the Jewish Messiah. And 
Jesus did a number of miracles, uh, really I should say innumerable miracles, and yet the Jews did not believe in him. Why not? Right? That should that bothered John, and really to some extent it should bother us too. Why did that happen? Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, he deals with the exact same question. He asks the same thing. Hey, why did the Jews not believe in their own Messiah? What went wrong? And both authors give the exact same answer. Because God hardened the Jews. Now, that, I bet, makes many of us feel a little bit uncomfortable. So let's explore that idea. Now, uh, John makes reference to two prophecies, right? John says, God hardened them such that the following prophecies may be fulfilled. And he cites from Isaiah 53, and then he cites from Isaiah 6, I believe it was. Yes. Now, Isaiah 53 is a key prophecy to the following several chapters that we're going to read. So I do want to read that in its entirety, but I won't just yet because I don't, I don't want to miss the point that I'm making. I will return to it. Um, but in, in both prophecies, um, effectively what you have is God. Uh, actually, let me read Isaiah 6.10 because it makes it just so vivid. It says, Make the hearts of these people calloused, make their ears deaf and their eyes blind. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Their hearts might understand and they might repent and be healed. Okay. Okay. Again, this seems, this, this seems, um, hard to understand. I'll put it that way. That God would harden the Jews so that they, would not understand. Now, so let, let's deal with this idea of hardening um, and see what we can learn from it. Well, number one, when we read those prophecies and we when we read Paul in Romans, one of the things that we gather right away is that God has a purpose. In this case, the purpose was that Christ would be crucified, right? That he would be killed so that he would atone for the sins of all and that the message, that the gospel, the good news, would go out to the Gentiles. So the Jews had to reject Christ, such that the message then, well, first of all, again, the, the crucifixion might happen, and then this message would spread everywhere. So there is a purpose. Now, even if we um, understand that, okay, so there's a good reason for this, this just leads to more hard questions. Um, would, you know, is it, is it fair? Is it fair that God would do this? Uh, would God do this to anyone, right? Um, and I, I want to address those questions to the best of my abilities. This idea of hardening is actually all over the Bible. Um, we see it very early on in the Old Testament, and we see it all the way, you know, through Romans in the New Testament. And it comes up with foreign nations, meaning not, not the Israelite nation, and sometimes, you know, it comes up with Israel itself. The, the kind of the go-to example, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention this one because in this discussion, I mean, you can't avoid this example, would be Pharaoh in the Old Testament. So remember, the Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites, and, and God will deliver them. And this is like the miracle, right? The miracle that... In the Old Testament, the Israelites keep going back to, in the sense that they will say, 
God is the God who delivered us from the Egyptians. That that is the main credential. That is the main thing that they that they can think about. That they can always hold as their guiding star. Well, when God tells Moses, "Hey, go go free the Israelites." He, he God says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the wonders I have put under your control, but I will harden his heart and he will not let the people go. Then there's a subsequent dialogue where God pretty much repeats himself, but then he actually adds the purpose. He said, he says, you know, again, I will multiply my signs and my wonders, but Pharaoh will not listen to you. I mean, yeah, listen to you because I will harden his heart. And he says, I will reach into Egypt and bring out my regiments, my people, the Israelites, from the land of e Egypt with great acts of judgment. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I extend my hand over Egypt and bring the Israelites out from among them. Okay. So this whole conflict with the Egyptians will, will play out in such a way that it will be clear that God is who he says he is. It will be clear to the Egyptians. It will be clear to the Israelites and the Israelites will be delivered. Okay, so again, you see that idea of purpose. Now, after that, we see a sort of progression as the plagues are unleashed on Egypt. At first, Pharaoh's heart is just described as being hard. Okay, Then it is described as remaining hard. Then as Pharaoh hardening his own heart, and eventually as God hardening his heart. Okay, That is the progression. It is hard. It remains hard. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then finally, God hardens his heart. Um, well, so with that story in mind, let's actually address the two questions that I raised. First of all, is it fair that God would do this? And the, the answer actually that we get in, in Romans um, we don't really see the answer in John, but I think it's fair to go ahead and pull this text in just to to kind of have a comprehensive understanding. Uh, Paul pretty much says, hey, wh what right does the clay have to say to the potter what the potter ought to do with the clay? Essentially, you're a human being. You have no right to question what God is doing. Okay, It's kind of a harsh answer, but it doesn't make it any less true. Now, does this mean that God then is like capricious or he just, you know, he does things arbitrarily without any rhyme or reason or without any justice. And that's not the case. And I, and I think sometimes we forget this, that God is perfectly good. So whatever God does, whether we understand it or not, he does imperfect goodness. Um, so the, the response that Paul gives is by no means God can do whatever, whether good or evil, and uh, you can say nothing. No. God is perfectly good, and so he will act in his perfect goodness. And whether we understand it or not, that's just besides the point. Okay, So that's the answer to that question. Now, would God harden somebody's heart who, quote, doesn't deserve it? And now, uh, I, I phrase that kind of carelessly, but on purpose. I don't mean this. I don't, I, you know, I don't mean deserve it in the sense that, um, you know, somebody who's perfectly righteous and all of a sudden is like punished by God. No, because we know that nobody's perfectly righteous other than Christ. But what I mean is, would God say, take somebody who is, is who really means good, who's trying to do the right thing, and would God say, turn him to evil and then firm his resolve in evil? Okay, would God do that? Well, 
let's go back to Paul's source material, which would be Jeremiah, right? When Paul speaks in Roman, in Romans, he's actually referencing uh, the book of Jeremiah. And I'm going to read this, and then we'll, we'll be able to pull kind of a, I think, a conclusion from this. Um, this is from Jeremiah chapter 18. It says, The Lord said to Jeremiah, Go down at once to the potter's house. I will speak to you further there. So I went down to the potter's house and found him working at his wheel. Now and then, there would be something wrong with the pot he was molding from the clay with his hands. So he would rework the clay into another kind of pot as he saw fit. Then the Lord's message came to me. I, the Lord, say, O nation of Israel, can I not deal with you as this potter deals with the clay? In my hands, you, O nation of Israel, are just like the clay in this potter's hand. There are times, Jeremiah, when I threaten to uproot, tear down, and destroy a nation or kingdom. But if that nation I threaten stops doing wrong, I will cancel the destruction I intended to do to it. And there are times when I promise to build up and establish a nation or kingdom. But if that nation does what displeases me and does not obey me, then I will cancel the good I promised to do to it. So now, tell the people of Judah and the citizens of Jerusalem, the Lord says, I am preparing to bring disaster on you. I am making plans to punish you. So every one of you, stop the evil things you have been doing. Correct the way you have been living and do what is right. Well, so notice what we see in Jeremiah. God is, uh, God certainly may harden somebody, but it is in line with what, with the evil things that that person or nation was already doing. Okay. Now this really is kind of a terrifying idea in my opinion, because we always assume that we have, that we have more time. We have more time to repent. We have more time to change our ways, but it sure seems like sometimes I'm not saying every time, but at least sometimes God at some point as an act of judgment says, fine, uh, you have endured in your wicked ways. Now I will kind of set you upon them. You will, you will not be able to turn away from them for a particular purpose. Um, and, um, you know, but meaning there is not always more time. Sometimes there comes a judgment where you will have to see your wicked ways through to the end. Um, so, like I said, it, it it's kind of a terrifying thing to think about. Now, I will I want to add one last note on this to kind of bring balance to to this idea, which is when we see the idea of hardening. Normally, this comes up. Actually, to my knowledge, exclusively. But if somebody knows a passage that I'm not thinking of, let me know. It comes up exclusively, to my knowledge, in the context of these big events that are. Um, that deal with entire nations. Like, sure, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but that changed the whole, you know, the whole dynamic between the Israelites and the Egyptian nation. Um, or in in the chapter that we're reading today, we see how by hardening Israel's heart, like the people of, of you know, the Jews' hearts, then this this completely changes how the gospel is distributed out to the non-Jews, right? But with that in mind, am I saying, oh, well, then God will only harden hearts when it has to do with these big events? I'm not really saying that either. I, like I said, I just wanted to point out that is when we see uh, this uh, this kind of thing. But um, 
I think we pretty much see this with people as well. There, there is a verse out of uh, Romans chapter one, where God is saying, "Hey, you know, you guys have done all these wicked things." I'm going to summarize it like that. If you, if you want to see what I'm quoting, you can go to the blog. But, it, but it ends in the following way: Therefore, God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Again. Therefore, God gave them over in the desires of their hearts, right? That, if it's not the same idea, then it's extremely close. That fine, there comes a point where God's wrath may come upon you and say, this is the, this is the way you want to go. Fine. Then you are given over to those ways. Um, and that is really what's described in Romans 1 as God's wrath. Uh, it's very different, I think, from what we normally would think of as God's wrath. God's wrath is telling you, fine, have it your way. Um, and uh, Matt, I don't know if you want to announce questions, and then I have a couple of really short things to say, and I will be done. Sure. As usual, everybody, if you have a question, point of discussion, anything you'd like to talk about, just type the word question in the chat. Just the word question will suffice, and I will bring you in momentarily okay really the last thing i want to cover is this idea that the some of the leaders believed jesus but they would not say it why well we're really giving kind of a practical reason and then a more spiritual or moral reason the practical reason is they would be kicked out of the synagogue right they would be what we might call nowadays excommunicated and as, as i've said Previously, if you are excommunicated from the synagogue, you're really being excommunicated from the community. You are an outcast. Um, but then for the more important reason, the spiritual reason or moral reason, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Okay. Now, why, why do I want to point this out? This is actually a teaching that comes up quite a bit in the Gospels, not so much in the Gospel of John, but this is a clear example of it which is that the rich and um, well-to-do, those in those with power, those in, in high places, they actually have a harder time coming to Jesus uh, than those who are poor. Um, consider the following sayings of, of Jesus. He says, again, I say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Or the following saying, Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God belongs to you. There is this theme of a great reversal, where it is the rich and powerful who now are, in a sense, accursed, that they have a higher burden to come to Christ because it will cost them more. They have more reputation to give up. They have more money uh, to lose uh, than a poor person does, right? A poor person has very little to lose. They say, fine, I have nothing in this life. Then I will put my trust in Jesus for the next life. Um, and it, it, this was very counterintuitive to their culture at the time. They assumed that the rich people were blessed by God. They were like chosen by God uh, in the sense of, of being partic particularly blessed and exalted. And so Again, in the other Gospels, the Jews react by saying, well, if the rich can't make it to heaven, then how can anyone, right? Essentially, if the blessed cannot make it to heaven, how can anyone? And there is this great reversal. And again, we see it here in John. It's very consistent with the other Gospels. 
And the last part of what we read today is what many consider a summary speech, where Jesus pretty much summarizes what he has been teaching throughout. And I I have nothing to add, not because that speech uh, from verses 44 through 50, not because it's not important in any way, of course not, but we've discussed all of these things before. Uh, so I'm just going to read it, and then I will open this up for questions or comments. It says, but Jesus shouted out, the one who believes in me does not believe in me, but in the one who sent me. Right? We have seen that very much before. And the one who sees me sees the one who sent me. Remember, him and the Father are one. Right? I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness. We literally saw this in John 1. We said he is the word. He was you know, he was God, he was with God, and he was the light to the world. Okay, if anyone hears my words and does not obey them, I do not judge him, for I have come to judge the world. Sorry, for I have not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not accept my words has a judge, the words I have spoken. We've also discussed this before. Jesus comes to the earth to save us, to give himself as a ransom for many. But he also becomes kind of the dividing line. Those who accept him will be saved. Those who reject him will be damned. Um, and that uh, final judgment will happen at another time, not while Jesus is on earth. Um, finally, for I have not spoken from my own authority, but the Father himself who sent me has commanded me what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. We've discussed eternal life before. Thus, the things I say, I say just as the Father has told me. Okay, and with that, I will open it up to questions or comments. Sure, I'm going to uh, let Chris chime in first. I have a couple uh, thoughts or points of interest that I might want to discuss, but we'll see what Chris has, and maybe he'll hit on one of my points, and that will help me eliminate which one I want to <laughs> help me uh, help me uh, make my selection of what I want to talk about. Chris, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, thanks, guys, and 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 Robert, thanks uh, again for the opportunity, and thanks you for your preparation. Uh, the I really especially enjoyed your discussion about the hardening of the heart and the time you spent developing that idea. I, I have a I have a uh, sort of a metaphor that helps me with this, and and I'm kind of curious as to your thoughts about it. So if I had imagine I had a clay brick, you know, that's moist, you know, it hasn't it hasn't been it was just made. So I set it out in the sun and I have a stick of butter and I set that out in the sun. Well, the sun, the way we would say it is the sun hardened that brick, but it melted that butter. And the, it's the same sun doing the same thing. It's how it's the, the material is what made the difference. And I think that's kind of how, at least in my mind, I think about it, the, the, God absolutely, he knew Pharaoh's heart. He knew what Pharaoh would do. He knew it would harden. And he's like, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to give him the stimuli. I'm going to, I'm going to goad him with these plagues one at a time. And he's going to do what I know he's going to do. And it's going to accomplish my purpose. But anyway, I'm just curious if you sort of agree with that. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, largely I do. Uh, the one thing that I would say and and please respond here if you don't dis i mean if you disagree with me but i i think that there does come a point where maybe theoretically the person could turn their ways but there comes a point where god kind of intervenes and says no now i'm going to kind of shackle you to this resolve that you had um and and so there comes a point 
where it's not about the material, right? Like it's about God really doing this very much on purpose. Um, But really, for the most part, I agree with your analogy that there's a long time that the material is quote unquote deciding, right? The material is deciding whether they want to become soft to God's will or harden against it. But there comes a point sometimes when God says, fine, then I will use you now for this other purpose. And if that requires me uh, hardening your heart, then so be it. I will do so. I completely agree. And in particular, um, I, I put in the chat, but Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11, God even, or it, well, the, the scripture says, uh, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Yeah. In order yeah. that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure and unrighteousness. I think that's exactly what you're getting at. And, and I agree. Yeah. And I now, think I, we both agree. it doesn't start from a point of, of innocence, right? Yeah. I almost quoted that very verse. I'm so glad that you, that you quoted that. I, I almost put that in the blog and then I thought I had enough stuff, so I didn't. So thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Ricky, go ahead and chime in if you're ready. You there, Ricky? Hello. Uh, I think I got you now. You there? Uh, yeah. Go uh, for it. So, Robert, uh, mm-hmm. thanks for uh, uh, for the study. Uh, question that I was uh, that I want to explore is that, uh, as you said, that the Jews they were they had in their mind that they are looking for a Messiah who's going to come a king-like figure, and he's going to reign. So uh, so why could they not uh, accept that a suffering, like uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, uh, like uh, Isaiah 53 comes to mind, that uh, Jesus is uh, portrayed over there as a suffering servant. So these two things, do they... So, I mean, what does Isaiah 53 mean to a Jew uh, when he reads that portion? Does he not equate it to Messiah at all or what? Okay, this is a difficult question, and I'm going to give you the best answer that I can. Because um, to properly answer this question, I would have to be more familiar with rabbinic literature, right? The, The literature from the Jews after the time of Christ and how... They try to argue that Isaiah 53, uh, which is the the passage that I actually put in the blog and then didn't read out loud, um, but how they try to interpret it differently. Now, I can tell you this much, that I am familiar with some Jewish scholars uh, who are Christians, right, who are Messianic Jews. And this is the passage that they bring up to Jews today to say, hey, if Jesus is not the guy that Isaiah 53 was talking about, then that prophecy 
has not and will never be fulfilled. And it's actually a very persuasive argument. Now, I'm not saying that every Jew just instantly believes. That's certainly not what I'm saying. But it is used as one of the strongest apologetics today. So what I mean by that is, I do not think that uh, Judaism has a good interpretation of Isaiah 53 uh, apart from Christ. They, they just don't. Thanks, Ricky. Uh, if you have uh, additional thoughts, go ahead and chime in. But for now, um, oh, there you are, Ricky. Did you have anything you wanted to add? Uh, no. Then uh, do they do they think that the person described in Isaiah fifty three is a complete different person from the Messiah? I okay. Uh, that one. I'm not completely sure. Like I said, I would have to be more familiar with the rabbinic literature. Uh, and I don't know if they say the Messiah is not the guy in Isaiah 53 or if the Messiah is the guy in Isaiah 53, but that Messiah is just not Jesus. I don't know which line they take or if they take both. And, and like I said, I just got to plead ignorance on this one. Uh, Brian in the chat is saying he has some thoughts uh, or knowledge on the topic. Brian, if you want to add to that discussion, go ahead. Sure. Thanks, Matt. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, yeah, the key thing to, to, to keep in the, the front of your mind before all of this is that Judaism today is not Judaism 2000 years ago. This isn't this isn't what Jews thought 2000 years ago. 2000 years ago, if you asked them this, they they wouldn't have had as much of a problem. Um, you know, there were a lot of the their interpretations now are a reaction to christianity um like they reject they they claim they reject the trinity because it violates jewish theology that's wrong um jewish theology 2000 years ago was perfectly consistent with the with the the trinity they changed their theology to distance it from from christianity that's just an example just to keep in mind but if you ask a modern jew about if they if they themselves are literate in the rabbinical in the talmud they'll say that isaiah 53 refers to israel as a nation that and that the suffering servant songs in isaiah refer to israel as a nation and that that's plausible because it's it's partly true because the messiah is is identical to israel like the kind of like like a king is the embodiment of the nation like you might remember Yul Brenner in in uh the 10 commandments saying i am egypt it's it's kind of the same concept um but also there's there's a legend that has developed since uh, medieval Judaism that there are two messiahs. One will be Messiah Ben David, who will be who is who is the Messiah, who's the 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 king who will reign forever and bring in the uh, the the global paradise. But he has a forerunner, Messiah Ben Joseph, and he's going to be the suffering servant who will die and then uh, at the hands of an evil king named Armalus, who's basically the Antichrist. Then when Messiah ben David emerges at, in glory, he'll raise Messiah ben Joseph from the dead. A lot of this, again, it's it's, Judy, it's it's the rabbinical tradition responding to Christianity and trying to reinterpret uh, prophecies that, that are clearly fulfilled in Jesus, but reinterpret them in a way that satisfies the text but doesn't lead to Jesus. So I, I hope that there, there's a lot more I could say about this. And I hope that answers your question. Oh, 
Thank you, Brian. That was great. I did not, I, I was aware of some of those things, but I certainly could not have explained it so well. Glad to help. Thanks. Thanks, Brian. And thank you, Ricky. Appreciate it. Uh, R. Hamilton, go ahead and chime in if you're ready. Hello? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Uh, it's it goes back to uh, when uh, the Philistines were looking for uh, the kingly person. Uh, one of the things is that and this might just be my own thing, and that's why I'm not sure if this is a question or a statement. Um, the body and the spirit, when they were looking for somebody who is kingly, they were looking for it in the body and not in the spirit. Would, And this is kind of going metaphysical. Uh, would you count those as two different entities as the body and spirit being separate from each other or being wholly one entity? Are we speaking of Christ or are we speaking of a regular person? Uh, this is of Christ because he's supposed to be immortal in his flesh, but the God in his spirit. So, would you count those as two separate entities? Is that easier to think about, or is uh, it, am I just confusing? Well, um, I, I mean, I think that we can certainly say that spirit and body are two separate things, right? Like in in Christian anthropology you really have three potential views, right? That people are just their body. That's called physicalism. Then that people are spirit and body. So they, they have two parts. And you also have a view that people have three parts, spirit, soul, and body. Okay. Now that's a debate that goes way beyond what we're discussing today. Let's just stick with the, with the one that there's two parts to a person, uh, soul and body. Certainly those two are separate. Now, when it comes to Christ, there's all these theories uh, that will go something like his body is the body of a human, but his spirit is divine. Um, I Pretty much all those theories get into very dangerous ground. Um, so I don't. I would not feel comfortable with making any distinction between like what part is human and what part is divine. Um, I would just say Jesus is truly human, truly divine. But yeah, I certainly have no issues with saying the soul and the body are different parts. Um, I think that's non-controversial. Does that help at all? I don't know if I missed the point of your question. Nope, that helps. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, R. Hamilton. All right, we are all caught up on questions or comments. We do have about five minutes left, so if anybody has any thoughts they'd like to add, again, just uh, type question in the chat, and I will get to you if, if time allows. Uh, I, I jotted down a couple of thoughts that uh, might be more tangential to the, the core of your lesson, but uh, I, I thought this uh, note about Satan being the ruler of hell as a... a, a uh, fiction outside of scripture was kind of interesting. Uh, and, you know, again, as someone who's uh, new to all of this, uh, new to scripture, frankly, um, I didn't necessarily know that. So where, where does that concept come from? Is it, is it literary? Is it uh, some other cultural thing that just made up Satan as hell's ruler in that way? Well, yeah. I mean, honestly, this is uh, just a later literary uh, creation. I, I suspect we get a lot of this imagery from Dante's Inferno, but certainly this idea predates Dante. Um, but uh, let me just say, I, I bet that if you asked 
you know, a hundred Christians, 98 out of a hundred would be like, yeah, like Satan, he rules in hell. Like they, they're just as misinformed. And I'm not saying this to criticize Christians. I'm saying this popular idea is so pervasive that even people who are, who have read the Bible, like never just connect those dots. Um, but where would somebody even get this idea out of the Bible? And the thing is that in the book of Revelation, this is the very last book in the New Testament, really the very last book in the Bible, period. Satan is cast in the lake of fire, which is called Gehenna in the in the Greek. Well, so that's where you get this fiery image of the devil being in a fiery place. Now, in in that point in the story, when the devil is cast in Gehenna for punishment or destruction, uh, it's certainly not a place that he's going to like rule it. So it, it's, it's actually very, like it just misses the whole point. When people say, oh, he, he rules in this fiery place. No, he doesn't. He never did and never will. That's just completely off. And speaking of misconceptions, toward the end, you mentioned some of Jesus's commentary on wealth and getting into rich people getting into heaven and that uh, the kingdom of God will will belong to the poor, those sorts of themes. Mm -hmm. And I've. Again, as someone who is not well versed in, in scripture, I always hear these themes referenced by people to present Jesus as someone who sort of hated the rich for the sake of hating their wealth. And in this context, you're sort of describing it as wealth can be bad insofar as it could be, I suppose, a substitute for God or any other priority over him. Mm -hmm. if, if you put wealth over godliness, then that's a problem. But it doesn't seem to me in your description here that it would be correct to say that Jesus hated wealth for wealth's sake. It's just that it was a misplaced priority. Am I understanding that correctly oh. or... Absolutely. Absolutely right. And in fact, we see this in the early church where there were many uh, wealthy people who would act as patrons of the church and they would receive them into their homes and all this stuff. And there was never an accusation of, oh, you guys are wealthy, so we don't want to associate with you guys or or anything like that. In fact, there's a story in Acts where the, this couple, they sell some land to donate the money to the church. And then they go to the church and they donate the money but they lie about it. They say they're donating the whole thing when really they only donate part of it. And one of the apostles is like, are you telling the truth? Are you really donating everything? And they're like, yes, yes. And they're struck dead. Now, the reason I tell this story is because the, the apostle actually tells them, this money was yours to do whatever you pleased. You, you know, you didn't have to donate it all. That's not the problem. The problem is not that you kept some for yourself. The problem is that you lied. You came here and lied in front of the church to make yourself seem righteous. And, and it's, I think it's key to understand that like, Hey, the money's yours. You do whatever you want with it. And now you ought, you should be generous, right? You should do good things with it, but it's your money, and there's no problem with that. There's no problem with being wealthy unless it becomes your priority. Um, the other way to put this is people always, or not always, sometimes people say money is the root of all evil, but really the quote is love of money is the root of all evil. Is that and, uh, scriptural in its origin? Yes, it is. is that, that is a, a word, verse. scriptural? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that is scriptural. It, it is. Have, okay. It is a verse in the Bible and okay. people always forget that part. It's love of money, not money. Yeah, Key yeah. distinction. 
we are at the top of the hour, Brian. I saw you. Uh, I see in the chat saying you have maybe some more thoughts on on I think the Satan topic there. So uh, if you have some thoughts to offer, we can get those before we're finished up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll just be real quick. Um, I, I think it's less important to trace the origin of that specific belief about Satan. Um, a, a lot of stuff has crept into Christianity from pagan mythology, including our ideas about the soul and the afterlife. And and we've transferred some ideas about the, the about the God of the underworld to, to Satan. The, the real like if you look, the real thing that we should consider is what the Bible actually teaches. Um, there's a verse in Ephesians where Paul talks about how uh, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against but against the rulers, against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. So Satan and his fellow uh, spiritual forces of darkness, they actually rule from heaven um, or from the heavenly realms, which is just heaven. But uh, anyway, there's a there's a whole if you tug on that string, if you if you look up the divine council worldview, there's this whole other side of the Bible that we that we tend to neglect that sheds a lot of light on that subject. Okay, thanks for the thoughts, Brian. Appreciate it. Uh, Robert, did you have any more thoughts you'd like to add before we're finished up? Uh, no, I will say that Chris on the chat, he posted that verse. Let me just read that out loud and we will be done. This is from 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Hmm. Okay. Thank you for the uh, reference, Chris. I appreciate it. All right, we'll finish up there. Appreciate everybody joining this evening. A quick reminder, again, we will be off next week. That is Saturday, October 29th. We will resume as usual on Saturday, November 5th. Uh, And then once more, if you have any uh, questions or comments or just communication you'd like to offer or participate in, you can head on over to the Bible study page of the website and talk with Robert through that page, or you can get in touch with me as well. And if you missed any part of the lesson, you can listen back to the lesson uh, audio on the Bible study page as well. You can find that on the homepage of the website, mattchristiansonmedia.com. Appreciate everybody and uh, have a great weekend and week off, and we will see you back here November 5th.